time that I found her Holding Jim Loving him Then Sue came along Loved me strong That's what I thought Me and Sue That died too Why are we playing this again? We are playing this because this is awesome. the music. This is the music segment where we disagree about everything, as anybody will do when they talk about their most privately and closely held musical passions. And this is one of mine. I love Neil Diamond, and people look at me funny when I say that, as Jesse is right now. He's mortified. I thought you didn't like it. That's why we're going to come in and kind of laugh at it. No, I actually love Solitary oh Man. Oh, my gosh. And I hate coming to America. Huh. That's interesting. Now, I don't like the production of this because this was laced in the 60s, but when you strip it down, it's a really, it's a great song. And that's what we, you know, what's always fun about music is, you know, Elvis can be great, then Elvis is in the sweet human jumpsuit and he sounds crazy. And depending on where you enter Elvis's life, you'll look at another guy and go, what were you thinking? (laughs) And this was, I think, the case with Neil Diamond. And so we were having a random discussion about music, about well, Hengler's obsession with Dave Matthews, it's a, its rather strange. He says he's had religious epiphanies at Dave Matthews' concerts. Everyone out there is saying, Lee strange for feeling that way, because it's, it's normal. It's normal. And Jesse just doesn't understand any of it, because he doesn't get Dave Matthews. And all he does when you say Dave Matthews is he does that famous Jesse grunt. Uh, uh, that's it. You're not going to hear another word from him. Uh. And we're not sure what Alex likes because he, he, he loves Creed and then says, I'm sorry, right after he says it. Everybody's got those guilty pleasures. They just, uh, you know, it's true. It. What's yours, Edward? We don't know your guilty pleasures. Come clean. Now, come clean. You've got one. Spice Girls? Spice Girls. You come know on. What? You know what? Uh, you're getting closer. I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, who do, I, I, I like Taylor Swift. I, I, I would never buy her albums, but I think she's talented and a good role model, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, but that's not so terrible. That's not so terrible. I mean, Ryan Adams just recorded that Taylor Swift record. He's cool. So, you know, she's sort of kind of cool. And you got, you know, you got kids, too. Yeah, I just can't think of too much crap that I actually do enjoy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, what he's saying is that we actually enjoy garbage, but he can't. You have to be aware of what other people think of it. It's not you consider it crap. Like for me, I know other people consider air supply to suck. I like air supply. Oh, that's painful. Making love out of nothing at all? That's great. It's stadium rock. (laughs) Stadium rock. 2 a.m. I'm drunk again. It's heavy on my mind. Stop mumbling, Dave. Stop mumbling. That's nice, though. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, hey, look, we have our favorite concerts, and we have our worst I concert experiences. And so that's what we really have to dig into here. And uh, worst concert experience, Edwards. You're getting you're revved up to see the show, oh, man, was, and they come out, and they just That was stink. easy. Uh, Peter Frampton was the worst show I think I've ever seen in my life. And why? Not only was it just sounding out of key and it was just boring and his opening act who was Buddy Guy who was 10 times more talented than he of course. was. He, he, before his set, he came out and whined at the audience not to take his picture because it, the, the show previously, I forget where it was, somebody was taking his picture. He told him to stop and the guy kept taking pictures so the guy ripped his iPhone out of, the, out of his hand and threw it <laughs> backstage. It caused, it caused a, a little snuffle in, in the news. It was in the news. Ugh. And so, so he, said, he got up on stage for a half hour and told us why he didn't want people taking his picture. 
Oh, that's great. So you're getting lectured at a concert. Yeah, so I started taking this picture, and you know, his guitar <laughs> player shaking his head at me. So then my wife and I and the people we were with, we just turned our backs to him and sat there <laughs> on the lawn with our backs to him during the whole show. And everybody but, takes I pictures. I mean, you that... spend your entire life trying to be somebody up on a stage and get your image out there and be a rock star, heaven forbid, and somebody's going to take your picture and you're going to whine about it like a little girl. It's crazy. I, I mean, no, Buddy Guy was amazing. Oh, yeah, He, he was only allowed to play for like a half hour because little prissy boy, uh, Peter Frank, <laughs> Hampton had to come out there on, on stage with his sequins pants and, and those little rivets on it. It's just it was so stupid. And this was an intimate show where it was the Brit Festivals in Oregon, where you know there's nothing between you and the stage. It's just the right. grass and the stage. Yep. He had to have these big old metal barriers up there, like these six foot tall metal to protect them from you crazy yeah, fans. Yeah, to protect us from you know this this little tiny hippie festival kind of a thing. And it's just man. Oh, yeah. never, never again. Sorry. Yeah, and by the way, Frampton was this gigantic star. Yeah. Frampton Comes Alive was this gigantic record, and he was this sex symbol, and he was in movies, and then he was nobody, which has got to be really painful. Hengel, your worst concert experience. Or do you just love all of them? I, I was sitting there thinking, like, and yeah, I pretty much did, because I don't, I don't commit unless I know, you know, it's going to be good stuff. But I would have to say that the opening band for um, GNR was Soundgarden, and it was beyond awful. Guns N' Roses. GNR is yeah. Guns N' Roses yeah. for you non-Guns N' Roses fans. GNR. <laughs> yeah. S. You didn't say Soundgarden. You should have said S. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Soundgarden. Right. Got it. <laughs> Mine was Johnny Cash, biggest disappointment in my life. I've wow, seen him a couple of times, and he was just terrible. But then I saw him when he was good, and then that was one of the great nights of my life. And he's your favorite. He is, but what I'm saying is sometimes you go to see yeah. your favorite. Led Zeppelin, I mean, I saw them in the Madison Square Garden. It was terrible. It was in, incomprehensibly bad. And then I saw him again two or three years later, and it was incomprehensibly good. Yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan, incomprehensibly bad when he was on drugs. Then I saw him on the Instep tour just before that helicopter crashed and he died. Best show, one of the best shows I've ever seen. How about a show? How about like a, a group you didn't like, but then you saw them live and then you liked them instantly? Oh my goodness. Uh, there's a bunch of. Mine was Metallica. Like I couldn't stand Metallica. And then I went to a show and I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Now um, I can't stand them anymore again, but. A lot of the, such as life. Some of the country acts, that's what did it. Lone Star Cafe hooked me to George Jones. Uh-huh. It got me going. Uh, got me going on a bunch of people. And then the, the Pink Floyd. I never liked Pink Floyd until I saw him. Wow. wow. Yep. And Prince. I didn't like Prince at all until I saw <laughs> Prince. And Prince may have been the greatest showman I've ever seen in my life. Better oh. than James Brown. And I saw James Brown. And James Brown had nothing over Prince. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. What about what about you, you you gentlemen over there? John, best show. <laughs> best show? Um, man, what we entered with. Neil Diamond. Just the energy in the, in the stadium. <laughs> the wise, wise and, man. I mean, that was... It was amazing. If the whole crowd together singing every song, I mean, it was amazing. Worst concert? Yeah. Pretty easy. Uh, I, it was Paul Simon and Bob Dylan together. Oh, wow. And Dylan was horrible. You couldn't even understand what he was saying. Paul Simon, on the other hand, good show, but yeah. they were playing together, oh, and it was amazing. That's rough. And uh, we're going to go out with some... Neil Diamond, just for Jesse. Just Yay! for Jesse. And Alex, the you love Creed, we need to say no more. I will have to leave on that note. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Just goofing off here for a segment, just like you do so often in your life. More after these messages. Those horns sound like flatulence. <laughs> Thank you.
is How American Stories, and some of our very best stories come out of the very worst circumstances. Natural disasters like Harvey in Houston are devastating, but they also mobilize Americans to do what we do best. Here's one of the folks on the ground near Houston. I've been doing disaster relief for 11 years. In New Orleans after Katrina, and more after the tornado, in California after wildfires, in Haiti after the earthquake, in Nepal after the earthquake. I haven't seen anything quite like this in terms of the expanse of the damage and the flooding. Everywhere you look, there is somebody in danger or peril. And that's Chef Gary LeBlanc, the founder of one of the small nonprofits with boots on the ground in Houston, and the outfit is called Mercy Chefs. Here's Gary on how he got into this incredible line of work. New Orleans was my hometown. I spent almost 25 years in the hotel restaurant business there, had family, had friends, and I was living in Virginia and watched Katrina hit New Orleans and knew that I needed to do something. So I went down and used the only skill that I really had, and that was cooking. And I volunteered as a chef with a lot of other organizations. Frankly, I was disturbed when I got home and sort of recapped it in my mind. Uh, The food sanitation was lacking, time and temperature control, just the passion for food, the creativity, the professional acumen. None of that was there. Now, Now, bless them. They were doing the best they could, but when I got home, I thought that there was a better way to feed people in a disaster, that with the right equipment and professional chefs, that we could go in and do high-quality, handcrafted meals instead of just heat and serve stuff. And so when Gary and his team saw the forecast for Hurricane Harvey, they acted. Mercy Chefs mobilized their volunteers and moved their massive professional kitchens on wheels into positions south of Houston in Rockport, well before the storm hit. But nothing could prepare them for the human toll of the storm. When we got Gary on the phone from the Houston area, he told us some of what he'd seen. Folks are sitting in their front lawns or on the curb with all the belongings they can pull out of their house in a couple of garbage bags, and they're, they're just sitting there. They're as broken as the homes behind them. We've met people that that haven't eaten since the storm, and we're almost a week on the other side of it. We've met couples that have had to walk out from the points down at Port Aransas and around Rockport. You know, the mother with the children that rode out the storm because her husband is off working in Dallas, and he couldn't get back in. I I can't imagine it was that, that storm was a Category 4 when it came ashore in Rockport. And it sat there. It just sat in one place for 18 hours. That's like having a 50-mile-wide tornado park over your home for almost a whole day. These people tell stories of being terrified and not knowing when it was going to end or when it was going to pass. And then on top of that, now we've had almost a week of rain, just constant rain and the flooding. It, It has been... Unbelievable down here. There's more, as you might imagine. Anyone on the ground has stories and stories and stories. We've been very fortunate in Rockport. We've met the county judge and the chief of police. Both of them have damaged homes, but they're both determined to stay on station until they get their town stabilized. 
that's a big sacrifice that these first responders have to make to, to leave their home in shambles and to com- come protect their neighbors' homes. In Rockport, every building is damaged. There's not a single building there that, that wasn't damaged beyond use. We met one couple that was in a home, and the home blew down on them during the storm. And they crawled to their neighbor's house and found shelter underneath it with their three dogs. And then they were just afraid to come out for another day and a half. And when they did, they didn't know where to go. They weren't sure that there was anybody else alive anywhere. Gary and the Mercy Chefs team are adapting to conditions on the ground in Houston. We've been caught in flash floods. We've had to turn around and backtrack 100 miles to be able to make our destination. The water is funny. It moves. So a place that's flooded today could be dry tomorrow. Tomorrow uh, could be flooded in a place that it wasn't. And and so this this water, this four feet of rain that fell here in Texas, is just continuing to move around the state. It's creating havoc for first responders and for evacuees. Now, Texas has a pretty incredible system of roadmaps that you can access through the state government website. It'll show you what roads are closed and what roads are open. So we've been able to pick the very best path, but then in the two hours it takes us to get down the road, that changes so rapidly. It is just still an unfolding disaster here in Texas and parts of Louisiana. We asked Gary to tell us more about Mercy Chef's incredible volunteers and what makes their work possible. We have chefs that are coming in from all around the country, These guys will work 14, 15-hour days. They'll sleep on the floor if they have to. They are the secret to Mercy Chefs, an incredible volunteer base. They bring their own resources. Most of them show up with money and try to buy groceries. It is amazing. And we're seeing people come out to help us whose own homes are damaged. It really is a great American model of neighbors helping neighbors, Texans helping Texans. For that matter, Americans from all over the country helping Americans. With these first-rate people ready to work, the next challenge is getting product. After all, meals include both chefs and ingredients. We're having to run sometimes three, four hours outside of town to pick up additional supplies and products. We think tomorrow we're going to see some of our first food deliveries. You have to understand, Mercy Chefs, when we get groceries, it comes in a tractor-trailer truck. It's a pretty big endeavor for us. Um, the, the grocery bills are staggering, and um, it, it's just what it, we have to do to get the job done. All the food costs, just a raw food cost now, between $1.75 and $2.50 a meal. That's pretty economical, actually. But if you're doing 10 or 15,000 meals a day, you realize very quickly our grocery bill is $20,000 a day, $20,000 a day. And so that's the big thing we need people to help with. People will ask, so why don't, aren't there donated products? Well, yeah, there's going to be donated products, but by the time they get them here and there's a distribution system and warehousing for it, we're seven or eight days into a storm. Well, we can't wait that long because the way we respond first. So our only option is to go through one of the food wholesalers and order a tractor-trailer truck load of groceries. 
extend the fuel costs while we're on site. I mean, for us to get all of our vehicles on the road, everything full of diesel and gas and propane is almost $4,000. So the, the, the fuel bills, the cost of going on site are extreme. And we don't take any federal or state money. We don't have a corporate underwriter. We don't have a church sponsor. And so we rely on the generosity of individuals. And we can keep our independence. We can move more quickly. And frankly, we're able to get further in and do more good because of that independence. But that's only generated by, by folks, individuals that support us. Gary and Mercy Chefs plan to be in the Houston area well after the news cameras leave. And they can use your help. Their most direct need is funding. But Gary is also asking for volunteers and for prayers. Go to mercychefs.com to learn more. That's mercychefs.com. Here's a final thought from Gary and why they do this particular type of disaster relief. Something amazing happens over a shared meal. You know, all of us, we do it as family, we do it as friends. But to come into a disaster zone and feed first responders or search and rescue teams that have been living on pre-wrapped food or MREs for three or four days and give them a high-quality meal, or to meet a victim that literally, in the case here the last few days, is stumbling out of their home for the first time and confused and dazed and broken. And that opportunity to sit down and share a meal with them just creates a little sense of normalcy. For most of them, we find that it's the first time they've really considered their situation. They haven't taken a moment to realize that they've lost their home, they've lost their car, the kids have lost their school, their bank is gone, the hospital is closed down, there are no grocery stores. And, and they don't consider that all until they take a moment. And we see that happen over food. And they literally, they'll break down in our arms. It, it, is, it is just heart-wrenching to see what we've seen the last few days here. And there you have it, Chef Gary LeBlanc, MercyChefs.com. That's the America we know, and that's the America we love to talk about here on Our American Stories. In the, in the midst of devastation comes great generosity and great compassion. Chef Gary LeBlanc's story, Mercy Chef's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and on this day in history, Joan Rivers passed away at 81 years old. And as always, all of our This Days in History are brought to us from the great folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to learn everything you need to know about our country, about Western civilization, arts, literature, all the beautiful things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for all of their great free online courses. Today, we celebrate the life of the one, the only, Joan Rivers. An unparalleled legend in the entertainment industry, Joan was more than just a comedian. She was a force of nature, an internationally recognized celebrity, an Emmy Award-winning talk show host, a Grammy Award-winning performer, a Tony Award-nominated actress, 
best-selling author, playwright, screenwriter, film director, columnist, lecturer, radio host, jewelry designer, entrepreneur, and the renowned creator of the modern-day red carpet. Like so many of the great comedians, her life was full of tragedy. We'll get into some of that in just a minute, but first, let's remember Joan for what she was best at, making us laugh. Here she is on The Carol Burnett Show in 1970. Dumb doesn't matter when you're beautiful, which is why I am educated. (laughs) What good does education do you? You're a woman, does it do you any good? Now that you're married, what good? I'm a philosophy major. What good does philosophy do me now? I can go to the butcher, prove the meat doesn't exist. What good? What good? Calculus. Calculus. I was educated. I can figure out the length of a room. You don't need calculus when you figure out the length of a room once you're married. You know how you figure it out? It's always seven inches longer than your vacuum cleaner cord. That's how you figure out the length of a room. (laughs) Physics. Remember that lot? An object in motion tends to remain in motion. Remember that? An object in motion tends to remain in motion. A lie! Once you're married, an object in motion gets back in a bed when the object goes to the office. That's where I spend my day. I'm educated. Why should I kill myself? Why should I cook? Do you ever stop and say to yourself, why me? Some days I'm lying in bed. I say, why me, Lord? The Lord wanted me to cook. He would have given me aluminum hands. Why me? These hands were meant to hold charge cards. Look at that. Perfect. Perfect. Why should I cook? Why should I clean? Housework is futile. You make the bed, you do the dishes. Six months later, you have to start all over again. It's true. My house is clean enough, believe me. Once a month, I get out of bed. I dust. Guests are coming, I put out a drop cloth, I say I'm painting, that's it. And you have kids because the kids can clean if you're smart. If they can crawl, they can dust. It's all your attitude. You tie the diaper to the legs and you throw the cookie across the room. Go get it, stupid. And that was probably the cleanest example of her brand of stand-up comedy that we can share with you on Our American Stories because this is, after all, a family show. Joan could curse, she could swear, she could tell some of the dirtiest jokes and off-color jokes that any male comedian could tell. But that's for another show. We're going to hear a much more personal side of Joan Rivers. What better place to start than her childhood? Apparently, I was a really, really, really pretty infant to about three, where people would stop my mother on the street and say she should model, and, you know, like, really this glorious little thing. And then, instead of getting that way, I started to go that way and became not this little golden-haired angel, became a brown-haired, chubby child. Everything was all right. I mean, my parents had a good marriage. They argued about money. They argued about things parents, you know... But it wasn't a fight going on all the time at home. My place in the family was the funny one. I was always funny. Always witty, not funny, ha-ha. Not crossing your nose and putting the ice cream on your head. I was funny that I might make a remark about the ice cream. Got me the attention and the love and everybody saying, well, Barbara, my sister, is a smart one, but Joan is so clever. The daughter of Russian immigrants, 
Joan was raised in an upper-class lifestyle. My dad was a general practitioner. He had a huge practice, but people would pay him in chickens. You know, people would pay him in... Uh, to this day, I could go into any ethnic household, and I've eaten that food. Because somewhere along the line, one of those ladies made a strudel for my father. You know, so, so the money was always a big thing, and we were always in the very good schools. I mean, my mother just lived a life of fantasy. <laughs> she graduated from Barnard College in New York in 1954 with a Bachelor of Arts degree in English Literature and Anthropology. Before entering show business, Rivers worked at various jobs, such as a tour guide at Rockefeller Center, a writer at an advertising agency, and a fashion consultant at Bond Clothing Stores. During the late 50s, Rivers appeared in a short-run play, Driftwood, co-starring a then-unknown Barbara Streisand. The play ran for six weeks. Rivers performed in numerous comedy clubs in the village in New York before making her first appearance as a guest on The Tonight Show hosted at the time by Jack Parr. Here's Joan talking about that first TV appearance. First television appearance, I was brought up by an agent to the Jack Parr show. And uh, I thought it went very well, because I was then in office temporary. So I was telling him I used to steal stamps and sell them for half price, which is all true. And I told him these stories. And I said, I'm from Larchmont. My dad's a doctor. And uh, what was my joke? Oh, he spent two years in... I met a school two years in Tijuana. You know, his first words are, does that look right to you, nurse? And she always says, it doesn't matter, doctor. And uh, the next day, a man named Bob Shanks brought me up. The next day, uh, at the meeting, they said, gee, that girl was funny to Parr. And Parr said, she was a liar. A doctor's daughter doesn't steal stamps. And he took a pencil and put it through my name. And I was on earth, I floating. I thought I had done so well. She's a liar. A doctor's daughter doesn't steal stamps. That was it. Pencil through my name. Pencil through her name. By 1965, Rivers had a stint on Candid Camera as a gag writer. She made her first appearance on The Tonight Show with the new host, Johnny Carson, on February 17, 1965. Joan's final appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny was on April 25, 1986, to promote her new book. Would you welcome Miss Joan Rivers? The author spot. The The book spot. The author spot. How are you? This is the clothes I wore the first time wearing 1965 hair. Is this the same dress that you wore? Was it 65? February 17th, 1965. 21 years. 21 years. And you had the strand of pearls. pearls. The same hairdo. Is that nice? How are you feeling? Great. Yeah, we've gotten old. It's it's very hard for me to believe sometimes on the time frame to think that it was 21 years ago when you first came out and sat down. Do you... Do you think you're any older? I don't feel any older. I feel great. Yeah, you know when I feel older? I went to buy sexy underwear, and they automatically gift-wrapped it. Oh. And you go, oh. <laughs> Less than one month later, Joan was banned from The Tonight Show. The soon-to-launch Fox Television Network announced that it was giving her a late-night talk show, The Late Show starring Joan Rivers, making Rivers the first woman to have her own late-night talk show on a major network, making her a Carson competitor. Here's Joan. I left the show. I was hosting and um, getting better numbers than he was. And my contract was at the end. And they came to me and offered me my own show. And the first 
one I called was Carson to say, Johnny, I'm going to do my own show. And he hung up on me. I called him back, and he hung up again. And then told the press I never called him, never told him. And the press picked up, of course, the whole thing. And uh, I had a very bad reputation for about seven years. And people would say to me, you're such a bitch. And you can hear the sting. And this one really stung Joan bad. And people know about Carson. He was a tough man, and he was toughest on Joan. It should have been a congratulations to Jones, frankly. Uh, Carson had felt she'd betrayed him. But, of course, she was just moving on. When we come back... More on the life of Joan Rivers after these commercial messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our celebration of the life of Joan Rivers, and we had left off with her leaving The Tonight Show, Johnny being tough on her, the world being tough on her. How dare a woman leave a big hit show run by a man? By the way, same theme with Dolly Parton when she left Porter Wagoner's show. How could a woman do that? Betrayal. By the way, men did this every day. So this was what it was like, and Joan was a real trailblazer, and she paid a price for doing that, a personal one. The Late Show with Joan Rivers premiered on October 9, 1986 with David Lee Roth, Pee Wee Herman, Elton John, and Cher as guests. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Joan Rivers! I have, I have a whole, you bought my book, thank you. I, I have a whole monologue, which you won't do tonight. I am just... It's been five months, and so much has been said, and so much has been written, and I am just so, so happy to be here, and I thank you all so much. What a moment for Joan. What a moment. By the way, what a lineup. David Lee Roth, Pee Wee Herman, Elton John, and Cher. Could you imagine being the wardrobe person on that one? And the ego manager? Joan Rivers had everything she ever wanted, fame and fortune, the job of her dreams, a loyal husband, a loving child, a lavish estate and a future that beckoned with possibility. After years of struggle, she had not only succeeded as a comedian, but made history as TV's first and only female late-night talk show host. Less than a year later, she lost everything. In May of 1987, the first lady of comedy was fired from her job and publicly humiliated. Her husband, Edgar, unable to bear his own failure as a manager and a producer, killed himself. Uh, that was really with Edgar, my husband. Um, he was in such pain. Everything was crashing down around us. Uh, we had a big conflict with, we were on Fox and he had a tremendous conflict with the Fox people. He had had an open heart surgery and they had him on all kinds of medication and he went into this terrible depression. Major, major depression. And he really couldn't function as a producer. He just was couldn't make decisions, made the wrong decisions, um, worried about the wrong things, you know, all, everything was just wrong. And then uh, I just, just tried to do it all. Some really stupid woman said to me about six years ago, why didn't you just leave him and you want to go? Yeah, I'm going to leave my husband 21 years because he's going through bad times. 
Um, but it was terrible. And uh, I wish I could say I was a wonderful, good wife. I, I was furious at him that we were both hurting. We were both very upset. But I certainly knew why we were off the air. You know, I knew it was him. I, I guess somewhere I felt he should have just, he should have stepped aside and not let, let me make this grand gesture that destroyed my career. And here, Joan shares the painful details of how her husband committed suicide. He made uh, several tapes, to, one to me, one to my daughter, and one to uh, his best friend. He left three tapes of what he's going to do and why and goodbye and all that. And then just took the pills and killed himself. And my daughter got the call. That was some idiot called and said, is your mother home? And she said, no. And they said, well, please tell her. <laughs> her husband committed suicide in Philadelphia. So she was 15 years old. That's, that's something for a 15-year-old to get. And she had to go and tell me. I don't know if she's ever gotten over it. Because she had spoken to him the night before, and he had said, she said, when are you coming home, Daddy? He said, I'll be home tomorrow, Melissa. And then he hung up and made the tapes and killed himself. And my daughter now uh, is in her early 30s, and I don't know how she trusts anybody. How, how can you trust any man for the rest of your life when your father said, I'll be home tomorrow, and then killed himself? It's unimaginable, actually. In her darkest hour... Joan had one friend who quite possibly saved her life as she sat alone herself contemplating suicide. I don't know if I really would have, but I really got the gun out, the whole thing. And my dog, my little dog came and uh, sat in my lap, literally. And I said, somebody loves me. Got to take care of you. And that was... That was a big change, big turning point in my life. But my little, this little stupid dog, this little Yorkie who I adored, literally came and sat on my lap. And I thought, well, no one's going to take you, Spike. You're too mean. So I have to hang around for you. And literally, you saved my life. Joan was bitter about her husband's suicide to the end. And who could blame her? But she didn't let it define who she was. Left me in the ruins of the temple. You know, it's easy for Samson to push down the walls. But now we're in the, now what are we going to do? I have no show. I have, he had made bad investments. He wasn't a good businessman either. Everything was stopped. Stopped. And here I am. And I have a daughter that's in great trouble. And you're not here to help me? I'm furious. I walk past his picture to this day and I go, or friends will come up to me and say, well, when you're in heaven, you'll re-meet Edgar. And I go, oh, no, I won't. <laughs> not looking to see him again. But I don't hang around and say, leave me alone. I'm, having, I'm angry at my husband. I mean, I say, okay, let's, let's write that new play. 
Let's get out and do that television show. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's move it. Isn't this fabulous? Yeah, I still hate my husband, but isn't this fat? I won't let that be the primary blanket covering my life. And boy, didn't she. She moved on, rebuilt a career, and it took her in places no one could have ever expected. And an icon, an icon. And you never really heard her in public talk about what you just heard. I mean, we had to do the digging, and we do that here. And we love bringing you the story behind the story. By the way, when you listen to Carson's story, it's really sad. And when you listen to most of these comedians' stories, oh my goodness, Robin Williams, a train wreck. And tragic. And here on this show, we don't mock the artists who lose their life prematurely. One thing is clear. It's a hard life. It's a tough life. Or all these lives wouldn't end so tragically. And we look to them to entertain us, to ennoble us, and then, well, we don't pay much attention thereafter. As a philanthropist, Rivers supported causes including HIV-AIDS activism. She served as an honorary director of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She also supported guide dogs for the blind, donated to Jewish charities, animal welfare efforts, Habitat for Humanity, and the Boy Scouts of America. On August 28, 2014, Rivers experienced serious complications and stopped breathing while undergoing what was scheduled as a minor cosmetic surgery in Manhattan. Resuscitated an hour later, Rivers was transferred to the hospital and later put on life support. She died on September 4 at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, having never awoken from a medically induced coma. Joan eventually made it back to The Tonight Show after being banned for nearly 30 years when Jimmy Fallon took over as host. The day that she passed, Jimmy Fallon had this to say about her. I don't know if you guys have heard this, but uh, uh, our pal Joan Rivers passed away today. I know. Gosh, what a crazy time this is right now. And she's one of the, the funniest people uh, in the world, ever. And she used to come on the show. We loved her. The crew loved her. Everyone loved Joan Rivers. Uh, she is uh, fearless. Uh, one of the, I mean, she would come out and just say what you were thinking, but you wouldn't say it. <laughs> you would stop, and she, but she wouldn't stop. She would just say it. Uh, and a lot of people thought you know, that her humor was mean and stuff like that, but she just did it because she wanted to make everyone laugh. That's the goal. And she could take a joke just as easily as she could dish it out. One of the classic acts. Uh, I love her so much. Class act all the way. Um, she, uh, we, we had her, she hadn't been on The Tonight Show in, I want to say, over 26 years. Yeah. Uh, since Johnny Carson, they, some, some dispute or something. And she hadn't been on, and we had her on Late Night and welcomed her back to the network, NBC. But we had her on our very first Tonight Show when I, when I took over. And she hadn't, so I'm lucky to say that I got to work with her and have her on our Tonight Show. And I was just so blessed to do that. But we had this bit where at the beginning of the show I said, to, all my friend, uh, to my friend out there who said I couldn't host The Tonight Show, you owe me a hundred bucks. And then I had a parade of celebrities come out and throw a hundred bucks on the desk. Like De Niro, Tina Fey, uh, you know, everyone did it. It was great. And Joan Rivers, we asked Joan to be one of the people. And that was, she came out and she came over to me and uh, she started crying and gave me a kiss. It was really emotional and really nice. Um, She's just, I don't, I don't want to show a clip because I don't think it'll do her justice because she's just too funny. So what I would tell people is to rent Joan Rivers a piece of work on Netflix or Apple TV or wherever people watch movies now. Is that how you do it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Joan Rivers, a piece of work. You see this documentary. Have you guys seen this movie? It's, un, it's unbelievable when you see how much her work ethic and everything that went into it. She had a file cabinet full of jokes. 
that she would have like, a file cabinet full of like there was one I saw like there's a whole stack of cards about Tony Danza. I go why, why, why would you need that? I don't know why. Why would you have that? Uh, anyways, we loved her. Uh, we uh, we will definitely miss her. Gosh, Joan Rivers, one of the greatest. And there you have it, the life of Joan Rivers, and we're celebrating it and honoring her life because on this day in history, she passed in 2014. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by our good friends at Hillsdale College. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our On Leadership series. We've brought you interviews with exceptional leaders, some alive, some not. We're about to do one on Sam Walton. My goodness, what a business leader. We've done John Wooden. Heck, we did one on an institution, West Point, celebrating its birthday with the military historians from that great American institution. We've also had Chick-fil-A's Vice President of Talent, Deanne Turner, and also Andy McKenna, who, well, what a story he had getting up and growing up to be chairman at McDonald's and steadying a ship, uh, a monstrous ship, uh, one of the big American companies and food providers. And you can listen to all of our on-leadership interviews at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today, we're fortunate to be joined by Dina Dwyer-Owens, the co-chair of the Dwyer Group, a family of 14 franchise brands all in the service industry, and all of which you can find at their great one-stop platform, GetNeighborly.com. For all of your service needs, their 2,800 franchisees worldwide are hosted there. And that's right, folks, 2,800. Their service brands include AirServe, Glass Doctor, The Grounds Guys, Five Star Painting, Molly Made, Mr. Appliance, Mr. Electric, Mr. Handyman, Mr. Rooter, and I could go on and on, the Window Genie. Collectively, they make more than 3 million customer calls a year and account for more than $1.4 billion in system-wide sales. And you might also know their leader, Dina, from her appearance on the hit TV show, Undercover Boss. Dina, thanks so much for joining us. Lee, it is my pleasure. Thank you. Well, we always start by asking every guest, tell us about where you were born, that town, that place, Talk about your parents, the people who influenced you, and then if there are any early mentors as well or experiences that shaped you. Well, born in Stanford, Connecticut, I only lived there, though, I think the first year of my life because my father and mother were both raised in New York City. So uh, with five siblings, I quickly moved to the city, and uh, the six of us probably stayed in New York until early elementary school. My father was in the entertainment industry after he had put himself through college and um, owned a newspaper delivery route. But he actually uh, managed the band Steam, who produced the uh, first hit record for the song Na 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 Na, Hey Hey Hey. So yeah. you guys remember that? Uh-huh. I won't sing it for you, though, because I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll scare people away. I won't either. <laughs> so, yeah, so he followed the entertainment industry out into uh, Thousand Oaks, California. So, you know, we went from New York City to right outside of uh, Hollywood, basically, and uh, learned quickly that uh, raising a family in, in that part of the world wasn't the right timing uh, for us. But he went to a franchise show, and he learned about 
uh, a company called Success Motivation Institute based here in Waco, Texas. And he started having us, as uh, his six kids, listen to these motivational and leadership cassette tapes. Uh, maybe some of your listeners don't remember cassette tapes, but you might, Lee. Um, I know I do. Yep. And we were asked to listen to those uh, cassettes six times a week because that whole thing about repetition is the mother of skill. And, you know, we thought it was kind of corny as, as young elementary school kids. Yet he gave us a nice carrot with a, an additional allowance if we could answer his questions. So I remember being all over it once he threw that carrot out. And what I didn't realize is that there were so many good things that he was planting into our minds at such an early age that would benefit us as we grew up into you know adults and, and uh, become hopefully good citizens of our communities. So we moved from uh, outside of L.A. to Waco, Texas, when he was invited to be the vice president of one of the uh, Success Motivation Institute companies and worked for a wonderful guy named Paul Meyer, which is uh, where we learned all about goal setting, and and we could carry that through here at Dwyer today. And so my father uh, raised us working. So he said he didn't have much to offer uh, when we were young. My mother was the one who had a lot to offer, and, of course, she was the most amazing stay-at-home mom anybody could ever want. Um, I call her mother Teresa. Her, her her name is Teresa, but she's she's a gem. So he put us to work at the age of 12 and 13. And uh, my first real job was at a car wash he had built, full-service car wash. And my job was to work on the gas pumps selling to the customers. So I'd sell them a car wash, but I, I learned add-on sales there. I had to learn how to sell the polish waxes and the detail jobs. And I always wanted to work at the back, though. I thought it would be more fun to be back there with the cute guys detailing the cards. But he said, no, 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 no. You're staying up front for a couple of reasons. But one is I want you to learn sales. Yep. So, uh, you know, went to work every week. And there were no slumber parties for me back then, Lee. And by the way, what a thing to teach someone young. Because if he teaches you to be fearless and to have fun selling, you won't ever get to that age where you're afraid to sell. And I think he was sort of taking advantage of the fact that you were young and that when you're young, it's, it's easier to deal with rejection. And you might not even get it rejected as often because you're young, Dina. You're absolutely right. And I remember him saying to us, every no is that much closer to the yes. So I kind of just got used to, you know what, I'm getting closer to the yes. And I was very fortunate you know, to be raised by uh, a couple of parents who... Uh, planted such good things in, into my mind and, and showed such belief for me. And, and I look back and I think uh, they didn't have the tools we have today to kind of keep up with our kids, you know, like cell phones and all of that. And and yet they did their best to raise us um, and, and then just trusted us. And we went out there with some skills that, uh, again, I'm just fortunate that I was put into those situations and, and put to work at a young age. You bet. And, Dina, you, you were taught upselling at a very early age. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Be yeah. still my heart. <laughs> <laughs> 13 at 13 at 13 the dad saying hey what about that carbonu wax or whatever it is or you know what about that special 10 10 package deal that's right it's so great it's a full detail job inside and out you are very, you're very lucky to have had the parents you had dina it's uh you don't want to talk about a leg up it's much more than a leg up when you've got parents who not only raise you properly but work hard at instilling values that can carry you forward for a long time when we come back We're going to continue our conversation with Dina Dwyer-Owens. She's the co-chair of the Dwyer Group. And my goodness, 2,800 franchisees worldwide are hosted on her site, GetNeighborly.com. They do $1.4 billion in system-wide sales and do 3 million customer calls a year. 
That's a whole lot of customers to keep track of. When we come back, more with our conversation with Dina Dwyer Owens. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our On Leadership series. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our On Leadership series with Dina Dwyer Owens, the co-chair of the Dwyer Group. And Dina, you worked for your dad, Don, and you've since taken over a significant and significantly grown his company, the Dwyer Group. But tell us what you learned from watching him, and if you maybe give an example or two of things, specific things you saw, because for all the parents listening, they don't listen to what you say. They watch what you do, and we've heard this over and over again from our best leaders. So what did you learn observing your dad? One of the greatest lessons, Lee, was never being afraid to ask. I, had, uh, I was helping him run a real estate company that we had here in Waco, Texas in the late 80s during the savings and loans crisis, and I was responsible for, we had four apartment communities, and they were not, they were not occupied. I mean, they were probably sitting at a 60% occupancy rate, which didn't pay the mortgage. And he said to me, I want you to go to the bank, and I want you to let them know that we need to have them discount the mortgage by half. And I was so mad at him, Lee. I said, what? You know, here we're a values-based company, and you're asking me to, to ask the banker to reduce your mortgage in half when you agreed to pay that. He said, Dina, I know I agreed to pay it. I, could, I, I would pay it if I could, but we, nobody expected the savings and loans crisis. And I'm in a situation where I either need to get them to work with us Otherwise, I'm going to give the property to them, and I don't want to do that either. But these are my choices. So get with the banker and have the discussion. And I went home, you know, just under my breath, did not like my father at all. But I went and met with this banker. I had a face-to-face, honest conversation. Here's the situation. We don't want to give the property back, but we need help. We need relief. To my shock, within a a two-week period, he said, let me get back to you. Just the fact that he was going to go think about it shocked me. Let me get back to you. Got back to me, and he said, we appreciate you guys willing to, to do what you can. And we're not going to discount it 50%, but we're going to discount the note by 40%. And here's a few other things that we're going to require from you uh, in doing that. So what a lesson, Lee. You know, I, I, again, I, I just was embarrassed to even have to go ask the question. But my father would rather have worked it out than given the property back to the bank. That's yep. the last thing the bank wanted, too, was another property. You bet. And, and doing hard things and having hard conversations uh, is, is, is hard. That's why you don't want to do them. And your dad, your dad had you do them and you didn't expect that result. Tina. I mean, that's the key. Your dad was thinking that was possible, but you had no, you had no, no thought that that was going to work out. You're right. I was absolutely shocked. So that's a huge lesson in my life. Um, and, and to do it all with respect, you know, again, the Dwyer groups, the values, uh, 
guided company, and you know you always treat people with complete respect, even having those tough conversations, or especially, especially, I should, say, you should always treat them with respect, but especially. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you one other thing. And my dad taught me this. And it was, son, if you want to meet a person, call them. You'd be shocked at what the answer might be. And I said, well, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. And I'd wanted to meet William F. Buckley. I'm a young college journalist. He goes, call him up. Send him your tear sheet. What do you got to lose? Next thing you know, I'm eating dinner at William F. Buckley's house. He said, come Amazing. on over, kid. And so sometimes if you don't ask, you're not going to get the answer you want. Yeah, and knocking the door shall be opened, right? Knocking the door. Mind. You never know what will happen. Dina, your dad dies suddenly at the early age of 60. And he's the leader. He's the patriarch. He's taught you all what to do. Uh, what? First of all, what was that like to lose your dad so fast, it sounds like here, and so unexpectedly yeah. and so early? So you got to get over the grief of that while simultaneously having to pivot, and hopefully in his honor, pivot and, and make what he did better. Talk about those things. Yeah, the good news is he and I were great friends. Uh, we spent a lot of time, of course, in business. I, I learned so much from him that we'd go on these long walks and you know, mostly talk about business until I had my, my first child, and then he began to see there's more to life than just business. But it was a shock to our organization, Lee. He had just taken the company public in 1993. And you know, so all these people are buying into Don Dwyer's vision, and then we, we lost him. So we we had to hunker down. Of course, there were a lot of things to get done because he was a true entrepreneur that had way too many things going on uh, on his desk with with not a professional team around him helping him with all those things. So there were years of um, of cleanup and uh, work that we had to get done. But we we said to ourselves, we will not let this company uh, fall. You know, we're gonna we're gonna pick it up. We're gonna do whatever it takes. And I think that was a blessing in disguise because it kept us very busy during a time that we could have been. Uh, we were sad, but we didn't get distracted because we knew the most important thing we had to do is make sure we were taking care of our, our franchisees, our employees, our shareholders, and our customers. And that's that's what Don would have wanted. Yeah, and, and then you're, in the end, the grief can turn into just honoring your dad. And I've seen this happen with founder companies. And the family just says, hey, let's pick up where dad left off. Let's carry on his legacy. Um, and that means that in the end that the parent raised the kids right too, because some kids, it's some, some, some founders of companies leave a mess on their hands because they didn't spend time with their kids inculcating the values. They're so busy building their companies that they sort of neglect their families. And it, it doesn't sound like that was your dad. Yeah. You know, that he died, the company was only 13 years old uh, when he died, and now we're 36 years old. And then that's a testament to, to him, Dina. And, and so what, what was his vision? And then you stumble on this. And by the way, as we all know from founders or really brilliant, dynamic leaders, they're doing a lot of stuff you don't even know about. So your dad's dead. And you, you're going on that desk going, oh, I didn't know we were in that business. Oh, I didn't know about that. Um, how much of, of that was there? And then talk about how you took his vision and then ultimately had to carry it forward with your own and your own new leadership's vision, because that has to happen. Well, he wanted to have a collection of franchise companies basically serving the same customer base, making it you know, easier on the customer, and at the same time giving franchisees the opportunity to own more than one, one brand. So that was his big, that was his big vision, and, and we knew that because uh, he, he always shared uh, what his, his goals were, and that was something um, he probably achieved 100 years of life in his 60 lead because he was so clear and so driven about what his goals were. So that was a big, the big picture. So when he passed away, you know, there, were, there were lots of things left on his desk, but what we had to do is say, 
how do we get there? How do we accomplish that? Because he was going down a couple of different bunny trails because he'd get excited about maybe a white-collar franchise opportunity. We have, we're best at home services. So our franchise family is all um, home services that are focused on repairing, maintaining, and enhancing homes. We do businesses as well, but the main focus is on homes. So we had to just stay very clear about that. And the other thing we had to do that we knew was the foundation for the success of the company was to keep the, the code of values alive and kicking. And we took his original code of values, we operationalized them, and today we call it living richly. So we're living with respect, integrity, customer focus, and having fun. And we have very specific, uh, you might call them values statements, below each one of those four core areas that we focus on. We, we've created a system around it. We were in the franchising business, and you take what's most important in franchising, and, and you create a system around it so they can be replicated. And that's what a franchise company does. So we did that with our values. So anything else that was sitting around on his desk that we said, does it fit with the values? Does it fit with the focus of being um, the world's largest home service provider, you know, with this collection of companies uh, making your lives easier as a consumer? And I think and, and the, we had to just start selling stuff off. You bet. And, and, and again, the focus is so important. And I think one of the underlying values was your values proposition. And second, that once you're in that door, whatever that core relationship is with the customer, you're now trading other services based on the values and the value of that initial relationship. And that was your dad's insight. You're in that door. Let's now take advantage of the fact that we have a customer who trusts us and a customer who likes us. Let's sell them other stuff in their house. And let's make it easier for the customer. You know, and, and the world is so much busier than what it was when he came up with this whole idea. Yep. Uh, so so getneighborly.com is that solution. And, and, you know, Lee, it took us 36 years to get there. And it's because we had to have the scale. We had to have the, the, the number of franchise locations that could take care of the consumers in their local markets. Um, and with the values as a foundation for our success, we've attracted the right people to be out there serving you as a consumer. And that was the next thing. And, and we got about a minute and a half here. But talk about the people. People listening, wanting to build anything. A church, build a, build a better PTA. How do you recruit your people? And to what degree does your values-based proposition and getting that right inside the culture of your company attract the right people to begin with? How much of that is the core of your recruitment? Uh, yeah, they say that, uh, I can't remember if it was Peter Drucker who said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I will tell you that our values have attracted the best employees in the franchising world uh, to, 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 to Waco, Texas, right? So we get people to come to Waco, Texas, because they want to they work for a company like Dwyer, because we've worked so hard to, to be that values got a leader. We are not perfectly, but we people know we give it our best. We try to reach that high bar every day. And, and the same thing goes with our franchisees. It's having that clarity of who we are and then aligning ourselves, not with the guy who's got the most money. They've got to have potential, and they've got to have desire, and they've got to be aligned with our values. Yep. So that's what we found is, is not let ourselves get caught up in the things that don't fit us best. What fits us best is people who are aligned with our values. And when we have a team aligned with our values, we can achieve anything. Yeah, and when you're, fight, when you're fighting over values, this isn't good at all. And I love that line, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And by the way, you, almost everybody we have on the air that has done any business at all, big, small, quotes Drucker at some point or another, which I'm going to now let my staff know we've got to do an hour on Drucker and talk to all the people that Drucker influenced. Because my goodness, Dina, it's, it's really unbelievable. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories on Leadership. Continues after these messages. 
This is Lee Habib, and we continue our conversation with Dina Dwyer Owens, the co-chair of the Dwyer Group. And my goodness, the amount of customer visits, 3 million customer contacts a year, just a crazy number, and $1.4 billion in revenue. And so we all have a lot to learn from Dina, and I'm sure she's out there learning herself. But one of the things that I think taught her the most was an accident, or maybe not an accident, who knows how it happened, but an appearance on a show that NBC produces called Undercover Boss. Dina, talk about that experience. <laughs> a couple of my friends had been on uh, Undercover Boss, and I'm thinking to myself, now wait a second, how can they be on it and, and Dwyer's not been on it? So uh, getting back to what my lesson was from Don Dwyer is never be afraid to ask. So I actually reached out to um, Studio Lambert, the producers, and said, you know, I think you guys should look at Dwyer Group. And they didn't know who Dwyer Group was, but they knew Mr. Rear, they knew Mr. Electric and Mr. Appliance and the brand names. And I said, look, we're a values-based company, and you know, out of all the episodes you've had air so far, only two of the bosses even mentioned the word values. So I'd like to go undercover to find out if the values really working on the front lines. And I'm a woman, and we know that your viewers are aching for people other than white guys <laughs> as the <Yep>. CEOs. <laughs> so they, uh, they jumped all over it, and we were blessed to be on that episode. And I think a couple, a couple of the big lessons is we have such an amazing family of franchisees and frontline team members that work for our franchisees who are out there every day working hard on behalf of our customers. I, it, it's so hard to lose sight of the hard work it takes to come into somebody's home and fix this stuff. Uh, like climbing into an attic to fix a, a heater. Yep. You know, it's, it's just amazing the work that they do. So that was just a, a reminder to me of we got to make sure that these people know how much we appreciate them. And then the second thing was is how willing um, Undercover Boss, the studio and CBS, were to really show me the real authentic person that I am and, and allow me to talk about my faith, follow me into church, bring me back home to the church at the end of the episode, and that, again, has just been a surprise that I didn't expect. God, God had a plan, though, Lee. <laughs> yep, yep. And by the way, credit to NBC, because a lot of times, at least in the popular media, the, very often the, the, the faith element of what makes someone great will be eliminated. I watched a long, uh, long hour on John Wooden on ESPN. They never mentioned his faith. Meanwhile, the seminal episode in his life, a Purdue coach, gives him a cross because John Wooden had a little bit of a temper. And he said, John, here's what I did, son. I had this wooden cross, and this is why I never had an argument with a ref, and not a bad one. I didn't get thrown out of games, and I behaved myself on the floor. Whenever I would feel tense, I'd clutch that cross in my hand. Here you go. And John Wooden held that cross in his hand on that bench, wow. and his, his church life was critical to his success. And boom, there's this story about John Wooden and what made him the man, the leader, the winner he was. And he didn't care about winning. He cared about integrity. He cared about love. He cared about serving his boys, and he cared most of all about serving his God out of the equation. So credit and kudos to NBC for doing that. By, by the way, Dean, here, CBS. Oh, CBS, that's CBS. right, CBS, yeah. right. And, and here were some of the things that, w w that I found astounding. Here were some of the things that folks said. Your company has renewed my faith in corporate America. Thank you for being so transparent and allowing yourself to be vulnerable and genuine. Another, it's not often that you get to see a company that operates with values and ethics. Here's one last one. It's not often that you get to see a company that operates with values and ethics. And this happened on and on, including the word love getting thrown around. And people saying, boy, I love that company. Boy, does that help our bottom line and our businesses when people love us, Dina? Uh, of course. And, and it, just today I got an email from, actually it came in late last night, from a, a viewer who watched a rerun episode of Undercover Boss and just, you know, commenting on how, 
so impressed by how we showed compassion and generosity to our employees. And I believe if you take care of your employees, they'll take care of you, is what this viewer says. And then she goes on to say that God has strategically placed me in her life, and she's wanting to do good for others, and she's got a a business dream in her heart that she uh, wants to start. And the show helped um, inspire her. So, you know, people think that love, again, is one of those words, kind of like values. It's just kind of warm and mushy. But you know what? We have to love our people. We have to love our customers. And that doesn't mean it's the, uh, the intimate kind of love that we have with our spouses. Right. It's the kind of love where you're, you're there to serve and give your best. And when you serve and give your best, it is amazing what shows up. Uh, you know, something wonderful always happens, Lee. Indeed, indeed. And, and by the way, you write in Values, Inc., that the Dwyer Group isn't the only company that incorporates values like love into their daily mission field, and yet you also note that 95% of companies with a code of values don't use them, and that 69% of workers are dissatisfied with the ethical climate of their company. Talk about that. It's a shame. And the, 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 the 95% of companies in North America that do nothing with their values once they're written is very unfortunate. And I think here's the issue. I think those leaders want to run good companies. They want to have the values be part of their organizations. They haven't figured out a way to incorporate them. And that's why I wrote Values, Inc., Values Incorporated. It comes down to what franchising does every day. Take what's most important in your business, create a system around it so it's replicatable. So whether Don Dwyer's here or not, the values need to live on. And guess what? They have lived on. And whether Dina Dwyer owns us here or Mike Biddle, our CEO, who's, by the way, doing an incredible job, whether we're here or not, it shouldn't matter to the future success of Dwyer Group because it's really about those values staying alive, not me staying alive or him staying alive. It's the values staying alive, but you've got to have a system around that. And in our case, it's a matter of reviewing the values at the beginning of every meeting of three or more franchisees or employees. And it may be that we review all 15 values. We've got a lot because <laughs> we want to make sure people are clear. Or maybe we talk about one, one particular value that we know we need to get better at. And what does that conversation sound like? What are, what, are the, what, are the, what are the core values you find yourself returning to the most out of the company's values? Are there, is, are there a core set? Well, yes. And you, know, we're in the, you made me smile when you asked that question because when we first introduced this to our employees, we gamified the values and we, we created the beep game. So we, we gave our employees the, the newly operationalized values, and one of them was speaking calmly and respectfully without profanity or sarcasm. And, Lee, we're in the trades businesses. <laughs> and not all trades people use profanity, but you know what? Yep. Some of them do. Mm-hmm. And the customers don't appreciate it. So when we played that beep game around the Dwyer Group for 90 days, this was 20 years ago, uh, it was like the Roadrunner was racing through our building. <laughs> so you know, that's one of those values that we, we have worked hard on, and it's just amazing how people can change. And somebody who's had a bad habit didn't even realize they had a bad habit uh, of using profanity has now cleaned up their language. Yeah, and by the way, Dina, turning it into fun rather than some fiat from the top and, and you know, having award systems, bonus systems, I mean, that, that can really help, too. I mean, how we get our people to change is as important and perhaps the reason why they change, the how. And, and what is the how there? I mean, obviously, you're talking a lot about it, but what are the incentives you use? Because you know, there's the old line that you'll always get the behavior you incentivize. Uh, so talk about that, too. Well, I think the how is uh, they they see that leadership, first of all, is not just uh, talking about it. They're really living it uh, and and open to getting feedback. Uh, And just starting with that game, initially, we basically said, you guys beep us. Let us know where we're falling down on the job. And the employees loved that. 
we just had an award, speaking of awards, we just had an awards ceremony about a week and a half ago, and we do have an award for what we call Living Rich, and the employees nominate one another. When they, when they see an employee who's really stepping up and living up to the values, they nominate them. So this annual award winner is somebody who came from the ranks of being nominated by their peers, and so they win, you know, they get a really nice bonus, uh, and in our case, they get a parking space for a year, which is a really a valuable piece of real estate here with our company growing at more than 50% the last uh, two and a half, three years. So we do have recognition programs uh, for that. And, and when we do a company-wide meeting, you know, we kick off every meeting with the Code of Values, and we give employees the opportunity to get up and recite the values by heart, with heart. And they do it with pride. They get up in front of a group of sometimes 300 people and recite the values. That's great, Dina. This is good news for people who are listening, too, for a family, for a church, for any organization. Lindley, we believe that we're delivering these On Leadership series to you folks because we can all lead in our lives, and we all have the capacity to do that. And it's just a, it's a matter of learning how to do it, and that's why we do what we do here. On Leadership, Dina Dwyer-Owens, the co-chair of the Dwyer Group, a family of 14 franchise brands. GetNeighborly.com is where you need to go to find out more. And my goodness, uh, a, a young lady who turned into a mom, who turned into a mover, and ultimately a leader herself taking over where her dad left off. Mrs. Lee Habib, this is Our American Stories with this great American story about an American leader. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is our final segment in an hour that's passed too fast. Dina Dwyer owns the co-chair of the Dwyer Group, a family of 14 franchise brands, 28 franchisees worldwide, $1.4 billion in sales. Go to GetNeighborly.com. That's GetNeighborly.com to learn more. And Dina is also the author of countless numbers of books, author of Live Rich and Values, Inc., She's appeared on Undercover Boss, so she has an agent, and she's a a TV star, too, and she wears many hats. But tonight, today, we're talking about leadership. And, Dina, let's just drill down just a little bit more on this values proposition. Uh, Jeffrey Skilling of Enron, David Barger of JetBlue. Two very different guys, two very different outcomes. Talk a little about these two stories, if you could. Gosh, it's it's such a... (laughs) My heart gets heavy when I think about the Jeffrey Skilling situation, how greed uh, gets in the way of people living happy and successful lives. And so it's unfortunate with Enron that they did have a, a set of clear, clearly written values. In fact, uh, every employee who came in before they were even hired had to read those values. And you know, then the supervisors kind of just shoved them off like, yeah, well, sometimes we apply them, sometimes we don't. And sure enough, that was the case. So... Some companies um, put them out there in a way that they're trying to look good to the uh, the outside world, yep. and yet inside they're uh, they're unhealthy. They're an unhealthy uh, organization, and those businesses will end up failing. You know, they're not going to live 36 years like we are, and we are far from from being a perfect company. But I think about JetBlue uh, and David Barcher. You know, and you you take care of those customers who are stuck on a, a tarmac for hours. And for a CEO to personally be waiting there 
um, to hand over uh, another round-trip ticket for your next trip because this one was not what you hoped it would be is incredible. Yep. And as unhappy and, and frustrated as the folks might have been sitting on that tarmac, at the end of the day, guess what they're saying about that company? They did what was right. And by the way, Dina, you know, this sounds like to a lot of people listening common sense, too. I mean, you're thinking, well, of course you should do that. You know, your parents always told you do the right thing. And I think what happens is somewhere along the way you go to business school, somewhere along the way you look at a lot of spreadsheets, somewhere along the way you start to take that shareholders meeting, that quarterly meeting so seriously that it all chips away at your values. And then the value becomes, did we deliver a profit with every single move we make? And that can't be the organizing ethos of a life. Yeah, I love the phrase, and I can't tell you who quoted it, but it's never too late to do what's right. And, and then I think about Patrick Lencioni, you know, who um, talks about when properly practiced, values inflict pain. <laughs> that values can actually uh, limit an organizational strategic and operational freedom. And here at the Dwyer Group, I, I just am so proud when I'm sitting in a, whether it's a board meeting or a growth team meeting, and, and we talk about an acquisition opportunity, and our, our CEO says, you know, gosh, it'd be fun to own that business, but I don't think it's right because one of the reasons we'd want to own it is because it's an opportunity to get referrals uh, from the customers of that business. But I don't think that's, that's the right way to treat those customers. I think we should just forego this, this opportunity. You know, you just sit back and you go, this is how it's supposed to be done. Yep, that's how it's supposed to be done. We did an hour on Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot, and there was a story about how one, one guy working on an aisle in some Home Depot had, had told a customer he didn't need a new toilet. He just needed this, like, 80-cent part, and he sort of showed him how to do it. And one of the managers got in his grill and said, you know, that guy came in here for a toilet, and you sold him a, you know, a little contraption. And ultimately, the, the, the genius of Bernie Marcus was getting at that manager to tell him, no, that guy did the right thing. Yeah, we didn't sell a toilet, and we could have made more money, but we earned a customer for life, silly man. We earned a customer for life. <laughs> And remember our values proposition. Remember it. And that must be a constant. Look, with our kids, we are constantly reinforcing them. And I think as adults, we need constant reinforcement. And a culture certainly does, Dina. Talk about that, not fight, but that, that habit of being that has to take place for culture to continue on. Well, we, as you said, everybody listening is a leader. If you influence anybody, you're a leader. And in our society today, we need everybody to step up and be the, the best leader that they can be to be better today than they were yesterday. And it's challenging themselves to really understand what are their values. Everybody's got a set of values. Write them down. In fact, I've got a uh, free um, Create Your Culture workbook, Lee. If, if any of the listeners are interested, they can go to dinadwyerowens.com and download the Create your culture workbook that will take them through six simple steps. I didn't say it was easy. Six simple steps because it takes a lot of thought to, to get your values clear and then come up with a system to keep your values front and center. And if everybody would do that, think about how this world would change. Um, and that could be the, the mother who is at home raising a, a family to the, the CEO who's running the, the, the Fortune 100 business. Yep, no doubt. And, and by the way, it, it is not simple. But it can change your life. And, and you, you go into those family uh, situations. We'll see, we'll see a family that has these traditions, this culture that's passed down. It's very intentional, Tina. It takes, it takes work. Um, but great things come from it. I want to get, uh, get some stories about your, your personal life. Just uh, tell us a quirk. What, you know, you, you've got some spare time. What is Dina Dwyer Owens like doing in her spare time? 
Oh, you're probably not going to believe this one, but my husband, for our anniversary last May, we're about to have our 27th this May, he bought us uh, mountain bikes. And we're in Waco, so you're thinking, what's a mountain bike going to do in Waco? But we've got this beautiful park called Cameron Park right down by our office in about 10 minutes from our home. And my, my husband did BMX bike racing when he was young, and he's just an athlete anyway. So he got us on these bikes, and we are we are going through these blue trails, like skiing. You know, they've got the black yep. diamond, they've yep. got the blue trails. And he, I am having such a blast. I don't make it up all the hills. I, I don't make it down all the hills with him either. I get off the bike and I walk occasionally. But each time we go, it's like a, I challenge myself to just make that corner. Make that corner without getting off the bike and walking it or, or make that hill that's on the edge of the river without getting off the bike and walking it. And it's like being a kid again. It's so much fun. Oh, that's great. And mind, body, spirit is what we learned about from West Point and how they really worked on all three of those things on these young men. And my goodness, what an institution and what kind of leadership they pump out of there every year, Dina. It's remarkable. You've told us that you go to daily Catholic mass and you're a busy person. Why do you do that every day? Oh, gosh, I need it. <laughs> I don't know. I had to get through my daily without it because it fills me up. At home, I'm really bad about getting quiet, and, and I do have a ritual in the morning when, when my husband and I are at the table. We listen to some uh, devotionals together, but to sit quietly and, and just read and study uh, the Bible, I find very difficult at home because I'm, I'm easily distracted. So I go to Mass. Like this morning, I went to an 8 o'clock Mass. Yesterday, I had a radio show, so I went to a 7.30 a.m. Mass, and there's no excuse. I can always find a daily Mass almost anywhere I am that I can go and get filled uh, with the Holy Spirit and focus on really what's most important in life. Um, and that's one of my values. In fact, faith is my number one personal value. Yeah, and we've found that from any number of our of our leaders, Dina, that they were able to serve others because they serve their God. Um, this, is a, this is a good starting point to lead a servant-based uh, leadership culture. Was there a teacher, Dina, that really had a profound impact on your life? Oh, you know, I would say my mother. Uh, again, my father raised me with a strong work ethic, and I'm so thankful for that. But my mother was the one who made sure that we were grounded in our faith at a very early age. And so even throughout high school my and college, my friends were like, oh, here we go again. Dina's going to make sure we go to church on Sunday. <laughs> and No matter where we were, we, we would. So it's just uh, my, my mother's just strong conviction that uh, that was the most important thing. And she taught me things like being uh, kind to others and saying please and thank you and, you know, uh, never trying to assume what's going on in somebody's life, but always look at them with, wow, I wonder what's happening that would cause them to behave that way. Yep. So she, she's really blessed me with that. Well, and it teaches you compassion and empathy. And if you don't have those things, how can you have a servant-based culture? I mean, in the end, if you right. can't listen to people and walk in their shoes, how can you be a leader? I want to you know, end with one final uh, space, and that is and not political, but just you know, we talk to business leaders particularly about uh, regulations, about the state and the interaction with the business and the state. Talk about what, what it's like dealing with bureaucracies and what would make your – if you were talking to the president of the United States right now or the governor or whomever, what would you tell them that business owners need more of? Uh, to grow their businesses, to make them more profitable so they can hire more and they can pay their people more. Yeah, uh, of course, the, the, the answer that always comes to mind is less regulation. Uh, we've got so much burdensome regulation in the franchising world that it, it's, it's unfortunate because it's restricting uh, people who want to own their businesses from possibly getting into, into a franchise business, which is the 
most likely the safest way to get into your first business because the systems are there and the support is there. And, and I'm not afraid of the political side of things, uh, Lee. I have to share with you that I've had the uh, – uh, things don't happen by accident. You know, I, I prayed for years that somehow Dwyer's values could affect what's going on in our government, and I've since worked with the highest-ranking woman in the House of Representatives, Kathy McMorris-Rogers, um, she works right with Paul Ryan and uh, the executive leadership yep. team there. She's now implemented uh, her own core values and her organization uh, up on the Capitol after the last 15 months, and the stories are amazing that are coming out of her office because her team, her chiefs of staff, are now holding themselves and their team members accountable to the values. And my, my prayer is that that will ripple through all of Congress and I know it's a long time, a lot of evangelizing that has to be done, but you know what, you got to start somewhere, and it's our role as leaders not to just look from the, the, the outside as to what's happening in government and complain about it, but to get on the inside and do what we can to help it. You bet. And, you know, we in the end, no matter what you think of any political leader, you got to pray for them in the end because it, we are one country, and they've got, they're dealing with a lot. They're dealing with the media. They they're do. dealing with their constituents, and my goodness, uh, sometimes I wonder why good people go into that line of work, and we want to continue to have our best and brightest go there. Dina, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for all you're doing with your with your folks, with the people you work with, and all the people and customers you impact. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, the story of Dina Dwyer Owens, the co-chair of the Dwyer Group, GetNeighborly.com, 2,800 franchisees worldwide, $1.4 billion in revenue, but most important, just a superb and good human being. Thank you, Dina, for all you do. Thank you, Lee. You bet.